section, Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 13 of Historical Fiction Unpacked. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Loudon Thomas. She grew up on a 100-acre farm in French Creek, West Virginia, the seventh generation to live there. Her Christian fiction is set in West Virginia and celebrates the people, the land, and the heritage of Appalachia. I'm sorry, Appalachia. During this interview, you'll hear Sarah teach me how to say Appalachia, but old habits die hard. So it's a long conversation because Sarah is so engaging and she just has an infectious laugh. Um, We talk about her latest book, which released on election day. It's called The Right Kind of Fool. Have a listen to my conversation with Sarah. Sarah Loudon Thomas, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this. Me too. Your newest novel, The Right Kind of Fool, is releasing November 3rd. Can you tell us about this book? Yeah. um, First of all, releasing November 3rd. Who came up with that idea? The whole... (laughs) Let's let's release a, a book on election day. On election day, yeah, <laughs> great. Um, yeah, so that's that's posing its own sort of challenges. But I'm sure. so the story um, I write, I, I tell people I write Appalachian historical. So my stories are um, 20th century historical, so kind of more recent history. Uh, I joke that that so I can just call my parents up when I need to do research. <laughs> I say, you know. What kind of stove did grandma cook on? <laughs> right. Um, so The Right Kind of Fool is set in the 1930s in a little town called Beverly in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not too far from Elkins in Randolph County. And my hero is a 13-year-old boy who is deaf. And wow, I, you know, when I had this idea, I thought, wow, this would be neat. And then I thought, wow, I am not a 13-year-old deaf boy. <laughs> <laughs> This could be a little bit challenging, Um, but the idea is that on a hot summer day in the small town of Beverly, Loyal is supposed to be at home, not going out, not getting into trouble, and he goes swimming because it's such a hot day, and he discovers a dead body, Mm -hmm. and his father has been basically estranged from the family. He really blames himself for Loyal's deafness, and he, you know, helps out, and he supports the family in some ways, but he's really absentee. And so uh, Loyal seeks him out to tell him about this, this body that he's found. And then the story kind of unfolds and it's a little bit of a murder mystery, you know, who, who killed the man Loyal found on the side of the river, but really it's about this family. And, um, you know, one review put it so beautifully, it's about hearing and being heard So we have this young man who's deaf and he's trying to communicate with his father who doesn't understand sign language. And Mm -hmm. um, it's just a story about repairing this family and putting them back together. And that extends to um, Creed, his father and his mom, Delphi, who are, you know, estranged. And so I always say, I don't like to write romance, but it turns out that writing the romance between a husband and a wife who are trying to rekindle that romance is pretty fantastic. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> cool. So I've read s- some of the book. I wasn't able to finish it yet. And it's a really intriguing story. Um, what you mentioned, 
you had the idea. What gave you the idea for this? Well, book? initially I had thought about writing a story about, uh, there's a woman named Mamie Thurmond who, uh, it's kind of, it's really an unsolved murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happened in the Southern part of West Virginia. She was found murdered in a, a blackberry patch and, um, People have some pretty strong ideas about what really happened, but uh, a, a black man ended up going, uh, being found guilty for it, but he didn't actually serve much time in prison, which also uh, lended to the idea that he was just the fall guy. But as I researched this, the, the, the one thing that really jumped out to me in this story was that when Mamie's body was discovered, it was discovered, and, and in the historical record, it just said, by a deaf mute boy. Mm. And I thought, what? Who? wait, <laughs> this is like the most intriguing bit of this entire, uh, you know, murder story. And, and that's all we know, really. And I, I did do, finally dig deep enough to find that this, and this, I think, says something about um, how we, referred to people in in the 1920s and 1930s, this deaf mute boy was actually, uh, I think in his thirties. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it was, it was more of almost a derogatory term than something to do with his age, but I had been picturing, you know, a kid, right. The young man in that original story, you know, just being the, they were referring to him as deaf and mute just really intrigued me. And I thought, you know, how does, how does someone g- be part of a trial um, right. if they're deaf and mute? So uh, I did find a transcript of the trial, um, not like word for word, but it, it was an overview of it. And it said that he used hand sign when he was on the stand. So then I started thinking, you know, how does loyal communicate? And so I, I, at this point, I've completely put aside that original murder story. And I've just started percolating on this idea of a a boy and I made him 13 years old who finds a dead body. And then the complications that being deaf throw into that. And then the complications that, you know, his family going through dealing with having a child who's deaf in the 1930s, that would have been really unusual. And, and there was a school for the deaf and the blind in West Virginia. So um, Beverly is close enough that he could have gone away to school, like to a to boarding school, which also plays into the story. Uh, so mm-hmm. I thought, you know, and now I can incorporate sign language because uh, he's learned sign language at the school for the deaf and the, and the blind. And, and he's learned to li- read lips, allowed me to work sign language and lip reading and those alternative forms of communication into the story, which was so much fun. When I was in second grade, I had this amazing teacher who uh, taught us the alphabet in sign language. And I still remember uh, the Christmas program that year we did, uh, do you hear what I hear? And like when that plays on the radio now, I start doing the signs because <laughs> <laughs> we learned it in sign language. Yeah. So I've always just been kind of enchanted by sign language. It's such a beautiful language. Mm-hmm. And as I researched it and incorporated it into the story, I learned so much just in terms of... Um, the challenges around using sign language and, and lip reading and the way that hearing people react to non-hearing people and how we interact with them in ways that don't don't necessarily make sense for people right. who aren't hearing. Um, there are things like Loyal 
would encounter somebody who would realize he was deaf and they would start either speaking very slowly and enunciating very clearly, or he could tell by just their expression that they're talking really loud. <laughs> and, you know, those don't actually help <laughs> right? when you're talking to someone who's deaf. And then things like um, if you do read lips, I think as a hearing person, we have the impression that it's the, you just look at somebody's lips and you know what they're saying. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's challenging in terms of different people shape words differently. Uh, if they have facial hair, a mustache or a beard, that really affects. And it, it has made me keenly aware of how often I touch my face when mm-hmm. I'm talking. Because if someone is reading my lips and I'm have my hand in front of my mouth, and uh, if only y'all could see me right now, <laughs> like <laughs> waving my hands madly. Um, right. That affects the uh, the ability to you know of the non hearing person to read your lips if if you turn your head if you look down, you know mm-hmm. all these different things uh, and it was just really wonderful and enlightening in some ways I hadn't expected in terms of uh, beginning to understand a little bit what non hearing people are dealing with. Right. Um, so how do you do research on what deaf people? think when they when someone talks to them or or how it works for them how did you learn about that well first of all i don't know what authors did before they had google (laughs) (laughs) you know this was much more labor intensive i found just some amazing articles uh where people have shared as as deaf people you know what what they experience and what some of the challenges are i also had uh, a couple of friends who um uh, one is a, is actually an author and she has profound hearing loss. So she's not completely deaf, but, you know, often when we're at events together, um, you know, we'll be in a big crowd of people and someone will speak to her. And, and I see how, you know, if she has her back turned to them or she's not looking right at them, you know, just how challenging it is and how sometimes she'll kind of pretend to hear <laughs> Because because we hearing people get frustrated oh, <laughs> when yeah. somebody doesn't get it. Um, so there, there are things like that, just experiences. And then I just, you know, checked out books uh, about the deaf community and, and hearing. And, you know, there's a there are a lot of people in the deaf community who prefer that this not be considered a, a handicap or a disability. Right. You know, it's a completely, it's just a, a different way of communicating. And there are a couple of points in the story where different characters kind of recognize that that Loyal is exceptional and that he speaks more than one language mm-hmm. and that it's not this kind of literal, you know, I, once upon a time, I thought sign language was just somebody literally using their hands to say exactly what I am saying no. verbally. And it's not at all. No. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of, um, and a lot of it really makes sense intuitively in terms of, of what the, the symbols look like. And, you know, when you shape the letters, they, they look like letters. Right. Um, but, but then there's also um, the expressions. Uh, people's facial expressions is just so important. And body language, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, a sign um, for angry that Loyal does at one point where he's telling people he's angry and it would have just been making the sign. He would have made a, a, you know, kind of angry face and he would, his body language would have been really pronounced and emphatic. And so all of that was just so interesting. And 
a heck of a lot of fun to work into the story and the way um, the characters kind of communicate, not just verbally, but through, through their body language and through uh, expression and all that good stuff. It was, it was really neat. Cool. Yeah. I know a little bit about it because my sister-in-law is um, a teacher at a deaf school and she interprets Uh um, for our church services actually. So I've learned some from her and some about the deaf community too, just because she's been immersed in it, even though she's a hearing person. Yeah. I I also found a a Facebook group for a a local deaf church Mm. and just you know, I'm totally lurking on their Facebook page (laughs) (laughs) just to, you know, see um, things that they post and and comments there. And, you know, they would post videos of of like a church service or links, links to really videos that were interesting for them. And so just watching these and it was alternately really interesting and really intimidating because it's so beautiful to watch people communicate with sign language to each other, especially when you get two deaf people together who are using sign language exclusively and Mm -hmm. they fly. Yes. Like I thought, Oh, I'm just going to watch this and see what I can pick up. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. I'm like, Oh wait, I think that was no too late. (laughs) It's just breathtaking. Um, the way this communication flies through their hands. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. So you dedicated the right kind of fool to your dad who passed away in April. First of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Um, your dedication to him got me choked up. Well, yeah, I, I can't, we, we can't read that right now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you can, if you want to read it, you, you go ahead. I, I do just so that our listeners yeah. hear it, but I, I am a crier. So I was yeah. Me too. You said, thanks for the stories, dad. I'll take it from here. Um, So what do you want listeners to know about your dad? My dad is why I'm a storyteller. Um, He, I grew up, the the joke is that I learned to read because dad would read stories to me and fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) He always had this ability to just fall instantly asleep anywhere at any time in any situation. And so I, I learned to read so I could finish the stories. Yeah. But as much as valuable as it was that he read to me so much, it was the storytelling. And, uh, you know, he just anytime we were sitting around the dinner table or uh, in the living room of an evening or when we would go visit friends and family, the stories just poured out of him. And uh, my husband would get frustrated sometimes because he's like, we've heard this one. And I'd say, that's. <laughs> It's the oral tradition. This is right. this is what we do. And and it's not just that we've heard it before, but we'll say, tell the one about. Oh. And it's it's almost this performance art of um storytelling. And so there's there, you know, there's some of dad's stories that I have adopted and I, I will tell my dad's stories. And then Jim, my husband, will get frustrated because I'll come home from the grocery store and he'll be like, How is the store? And and I'll have this story about, you know, being in the checkout line and what the person behind me was doing and the girl at the counter. And he's like, just all I wanted to know was if they had <laughs> chips. <laughs> so everything turns into a story for me. And that I, I blame that on my father primarily. So, um, you know, 
I joked earlier about how research for me a lot of times was just calling up my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad was the sixth generation to live on our family farm in West Virginia. Uh, my husband and I now own that property. I'm the seventh generation. My niece is the eighth oh, to, wow. to live on this, this land that's been passed down through our family. And, you know, those stories are a big part of this family of storytellers. So I originally got into writing because I started not telling those stories exactly, but being inspired by, you know, my grandparents and my great grandparents and, and this, just this rich history that my family has. And so dad was my link to that. And, um, you know, he had Parkinson's for a long time and he'd been fading. And I tried to get in there and ask those questions that I knew I was going to want to know the answers to. And you never get them all asked. (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah. There are still moments when I think, oh, man, I wish I could ask dad that. So um, I just feel like as a as a author, as a writer, as a storyteller, that I'm carrying on my dad's legacy. And and so that's really, really precious to me. Yeah, that's beautiful. So you mentioned you come from West Virginia yourself. So what is it like to have your roots in Appalachia? Am I saying it right? I want to say Appalachia because that's how I would no. say it. No. I know. I know. I, I know it's wrong. Appalach- latch like the latch on a door. Well, I'm from Pennsylvania, so I, I, I guess I don't know how to pronounce it. But <laughs> It depends on which side yeah. of Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Eastern, Northeastern. So. so tell us what it's like to have your roots in Appalachia. Well, um, like I said, you know, I, I go back seven generations and I actually this year after my dad passed, I was like, we, we have the farm and, and there's 60 acres there. And uh, at one point it was a hundred acres. And I thought, well, how much of this, you know, can I actually trace back? And I was able to, to find an eight acre plot that w- went through my father, my grandfather, my great grandmother, great, great grandfather back to this original Phillips family, David Phillips, who came in, uh, I think it was 1783. And it was Virginia at that time. Um, That was before West Virginia was even a state. Yeah. So it just feels rich. Mm -hmm. Like when I stand on that land and and I, I, at one point, I kind of came to terms with the fact that this is really just dirt and trees and rocks. <laughs> but this is dirt and trees and rocks that seven generations of people with my blood running through their veins have stood on and toiled on and experienced joy and experienced sorrow. And I don't believe in ghosts, but I do believe that there's um, that we sort of leave something of ourselves behind when we pass through a place. Mm. And so it's just this rich feeling of being part of something that's so much bigger than me. And I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I can, I can get behind that. We leave something of ourselves when we pass through a place. That's, I feel like I, I mean, I've felt that too. So yeah. Like, you. And I, I, and I don't want to get all woo woo, but, but like, you know, there's a presence, uh, an energy, if for lack of better words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is the, like the farmhouse still there? How many generations has, have the buildings been there? 
the the house that my father grew up in, the foundation is there. The house mm-hmm. is no longer um, the cellar house that's next door. Uh, and then the house that that's there now was actually built. My parents built the year I was born. So it's exactly as old as I am, <laughs> which oh. <laughs> I've always kind of gotten a kick out of. Yeah. Um, and then there are other places on the property where like we know that there used to be houses or, or structures of different sorts. So there's a little bit of, of that history too. And I think the other neat thing about being, you know, an Appalachian author being from Appalachia and West Virginia in particular, which by the way, is the only state that is entirely Appalachian. Um, Mm. Virginia, you know, Appalachia passes through Virginia, North Carolina, into the upstate of South Carolina. It goes North Maryland. I mean, some people extend it as far as New York, but Mm. that's the, the, you know, the Appalachian mountain range. West Virginia is 100% encompassed by Appalachia. There's no part of it that's not. Wow. Um, and then West Virginia is just kind of its own place. Uh, I was talking, I can't remember who I was, I was talking to earlier this week. Oh, we were talking about grits, <laughs> eating grits. <laughs> and I did not grow up eating grits. I live in the South now. I love me some good stone ground grits, especially if they have cheese in them. Mm. Um, but we didn't have that in West Virginia. Uh, yeah. And so does that make it Northern was the question. Uh, and I was like, no, <laughs> but is it Southern? Well, kind of maybe. And really West Virginia is its own thing. It's Appalachia. It's uh, if you're from there, you get to say it's hillbilly. Um, mm. It's, it's its own thing. And if you go there and you you get to know the people, I think that the people of Appalachia uh, and, and West Virginia in particular are some of the most generous, big-hearted people. But they're also, um, we're a little bit um, territorial. That's not quite the right word. Clannish. Uh. You know, um, we've got our people in we're going to feed you if you come see us, but we, we may take a while to include you as part of our clan. Mm. We gotta, we gotta check you out and and make sure. So now though, you live in Asheville, North Carolina. Yes. So why did you move away from West Virginia and the family farm, which you still own it, but you don't live. Right. Yeah. We, uh, when I went away to college, I went to coastal Carolina in South Carolina, which is down on the coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought I wanted to be a marine scientist. And it turned out that chemistry and math are hard. (laughs) And and English and history are relatively easy. (laughs) For for me, at least. For you. Yeah. Some people would say that. (laughs) Some people say the opposite and God bless them. (laughs) So, um, you know, I, I thought I wanted to get away from, you know, that, that, raisin that I'd had from for the first 18 years of my life, you know, living right. on a, a farm in the kind of the middle of nowhere, where I was I was a little bit secluded and, you know, didn't hang out with friends that much because they're just you're far apart from everybody. And it's hard uh, geographically to get together. And, uh, you know, I spent my summers working in the hay field and putting up the garden. And, you know, I wanted the world and to taste life and something right. different. Um, and then I tried that and I said, huh, that <laughs> that I grew up with was actually pretty awesome. 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, I met my husband in South Carolina and, and we lived there for, for three or four years. And then uh, a hurricane actually came through and sent us to high ground is, mm. is basically what happened. We lost our house in a flood oh, and um, we were started thinking, well, where do we want to live? And he's from Greenville, South Carolina. I'm from mm. West Virginia and Asheville's kind of a midpoint uh, between okay. those two places, but it's also back in my mountains. And what, what I learned most about leaving Appalachia was that I don't ever want to leave Appalachia. <laughs> I, I love visiting other places. The beach is beautiful. I, I you know, Rocky Mountains. I, I've, I've been to Colorado. I've been to California. These are just amazing places. And um, to sum it up, we, our first trip to New York, we, we found this fabulous little bar called Neary's. And you could sit at the bar and the, the guy behind the bar would introduce you to everyone who came in. So he got to know us a little bit. We're from Jim and Sarah from Asheville. And then people would come in who lived in the neighborhood and he would introduce us to them. And so we were talking to these amazing people and we just felt like we were part of this little New York community. And I was talking about how much I loved Central Park. Jim had to pry me out of Central Park by saying, you know, we have trees at home. <laughs> Let's let's see what New York has that we don't. <laughs> so this 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 woman was we were talking to her and she was there. Her nurse would bring her by every afternoon with for her like her one cocktail of the day. Mm-hmm. And she's she's sitting at the bar and we're, she's talking about how much she loves New York. And I was talking about how much I love Central Park. And uh, I said, Yeah, I I love New York, but after three or four days in the city, I just feel like I really want to get back to the country. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I feel exactly the same way about the country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, this is, this is how we're all made different is that, you know, I just love my mountains and that's okay. And, yeah. and to go for a hike and to, to see the flowers and the mountains and the streams and the trees. And I can identify the wildflowers and tell you about a few of the medicinal plants. And this is just my native ground. And for her, New York city was her native ground and we can visit each other. um, But we're each going to end up back in our, our, our territory. (laughs) Yeah. See, I told you everything turns into a story. (laughs) That's great. I love stories. (laughs) Um, So does anyone live there now on the family land in West Virginia? My younger brother actually lives uh, on the property. Uh, His and the niece that I mentioned growing up uh, is there part time. So he's kind of we we joke that he's the caretaker uh, of the property. And in a lot of ways, he is. My brother is a forester. he has a degree in forestry, and so he really maintains the property and keeps the the forests and the woods in good shape and arranges for the neighbors to come cut the hay in the summer so that he can kind of maintain and keep it up. It's not farmed anymore unless mm-hmm. we we joke that we we raise deer. <laughs> oh. The place is just covered up with deer, which is we were there this past spring, and you would practically trip over fawns. Oh my goodness. I mean, every time we would go out, 
pretty much we would we would see one and um you know sometimes you'll be walking and you'll just walk up on one you know hidden in the the tall grasses and then in the morning and the evening the deer come out to graze in the field there at the farmhouse and and they would have fawns it would be playing and and we watched fawns nurse and it's mm. it's lovely when you're not trying to actually farm the land because they of course eat everything <laughs> right but but we're we're at a point in our lives where we can just say, aren't they pretty? Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that a lot of your research consists of talking to um, like your parents um, and using their stories to help you. Can you expand on that at all? Yeah. When my first novel came out, Miracle in a Dry Season, my mother called me up and she said, well, Perla is this person and Casewell is this person. And I'm not sure who this is, but it's probably. And I said, mom, no, <laughs> no <laughs> none of them are literally any of those characters. I've, I've tried to be very careful and not say, okay, now I'm going to write my grandmother's story. But yeah. Perla, for example, who's, who's the heroine of that first novel. First of all, my, um, my step grandmother, my dad's stepmom, her name was Berla. Mm-hmm. which is a very unusual name. And so I, I, I kind of tweaked that and made it Perla. So there's a, there's a little bit of her. Um, my dad's biological mom who died when he was 18, she had a child uh, before my grandfather married her, which uh, that would have been, let's see, dad was born in 41. So that would have been like the late thirties when they got married. So that would have been, unbelievably scandalous. So I said, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to write a story about a heroine in the 1950s is what I actually chose who had a child out of wedlock and how did, how did that affect Mm -hmm. her and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's pieces of all those different family members and stories and the, um, until the harvest, that's a little bit of my dad's story, losing his mom when he was 18 years old. Can you hear the siren? I can, but <laughs> I live on a dead end street in the middle of the country. And, <laughs> <laughs> and there's siren. So, um, so Perla, that character, you know, there was a little bit of, of my grand of two grandmothers built into that. And then some of my great aunt Bess was rolled in there. So there were all these different um, people that kind of made that up. And then until the harvest, uh, my second story my dad losing his his uh, grandmother when he was, or I'm sorry, his mother when he was just 18 years old was mm-hmm. just a really challenging time for him. He shared with me a little bit about how hard that was, and so in until the harvest, you know, it's it. I thought about my dad going through this time. So in until the harvest, uh, Henry is my hero in that story, and his father dies. Like that's the the inciting incident at the beginning of that book is that he's a young man in his first year of college and his father dies. And that let me kind of explore what that was like for my dad. And so all those kinds of pieces where it's not necessarily that it's someone's story specifically, but um, of course, everything I've experienced and everything I've heard influences what I write there. This is the English major in me going back to that reader response criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was an English major too. Yeah. It's interesting because I've, my latest work in progress is, um, was inspired by a family story too, but when families 
when family started reading it, because they, I kind of wanted to make sure they were okay with it, but I, I would have to be like, no, that's not anybody specific. It's just, it's a completely yes. new character. And it might remind you of that person, but it's not them. It's not their story. I, I always tell tell family members that if they find it flattering, it's probably about them. And if it's not flattering, <laughs> then no, totally yes, not them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back in time to when you first started writing. When have you always been a writer? I mean, you talked about like you you tell stories like your dad, but when did you yeah. start um, actually trying to write books? I've always been enchanted by the idea of writing. Like even mm-hmm. before I knew how to write letters and words, I would uh, get scraps of paper and I would just scribble on them. And then I'd give them to my older brother who was learning cursive writing. And I'd say, do these look like letters? (laughs) (laughs) And I want, I just wanted them to be letters that I was scribbling on the, and it just, I don't know, it gave me this incredible sense of fulfillment to take, I got in trouble one time because I like took somebody's notebook and filled the entire notebook with scribbles. You know, none of it was words. It was just right. scribbles scribble, and the entire notebook. And then I would look at that and I'd be like, I wrote, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> so then as I got older and I realized how stinking hard it is <laughs> to write an entire book, um, I, I found I really had a love for poetry because poetry is, is like this little, story, emotion, feeling that you can capture on a single sheet of paper. And and I did publish some poetry, had some published poetry accepted to a few magazines here and there. Yeah. And and I was like, this is this is great. And I'll be a poet because that's totally manageable. <laughs> I can write a poem in an hour. Right. Uh, and then I I thought, you know, I just I still want to write stories. So Right out of college, I really started with the idea that I was going to write a novel. And uh, and I wrote some really, really bad stuff <laughs> that uh, I, I hope is lost forever. And it was just, it, it was not very good. And it was not very fun. Mm. So then I just had this idea. When I was f- four years old, I fell in the pond on our family farm and I nearly drowned. Oh, well. Uh, my mom pulled me out and threw me over her shoulder and pumped the water out of me. And I had to go to the hospital in the big city. And it was my, like, it was the first time I, it's actually my first memory. Wow. That I can point to and say, yes, I remember that. But what I remember most clearly is being under the water and I didn't know about drowning. I didn't know what was happening. Right. And I remember being under the water and looking up and I could see the rays of sunlight and the silt and the leaves from the bottom of the pond being kicked up and swirling and sparkling in that sunlight. And it was beautiful. Wow. And that, got me thinking about miracles and how, you know, that was kind of a miracle that I fell in this pond. I was in there longer than I should have been and I'm totally fine. And the memory I have of it is beautiful. (laughs) Wow. 
And so I started thinking about miracles and, and stories related to miracles. And then I started thinking about my grandmother and, you know, having a child and being an outcast. And then my grandfather, who was so respected by everyone in the, in the community, you know, marrying her and they had this, this wonderful marriage. And my dad was a product of that. And, and so then I started thinking, I'm going to write stories about miracles. And at that point, when I started writing about my family and incorporating miracles in some way, and that first story, the miracle was that, that Perla, the heroine could feed as many people as were hungry. And there was a drought and, and people were going hungry and, and she was able to do this wonderful thing. Yet she was a person who people said was bad because she had this child and no husband. Um, mm. So I started playing off that, you know, the kind of the idea of the everyday miraculous, that miracles are just going on around us all the time. And we, you know, we just take them for granted and we just say, this is life and this is the world. Um, mm. So at that point, I was just off and running. And what I had done now that I look back on it, what I had finally done was find my voice. My voice is rooted in what I'm rooted in, which is that Appalachian historical, you know, this, this place and these people that I love. And another big part of that was that so many of these people that my father told the stories about, I didn't get to meet. Uh, my grandfather died when I was six months old. Uh, my grandmother had passed away when dad was 18. Right. Um, there's really just a handful of family members that he grew up with. He had a, a an uncle who he hunted with all the time and stories about my uncle Judd, the hero of the sound of rain is named Judd. All these people that he would tell these stories about. And I just wanted to be with them and to know them. And I thought, well, shoot, I'm just going to make them up. Yeah. So I've made up this whole world of people who you know, are contemporaries of my father and my grandfather, who I get to know more closely and intimately than even dad could have known those people because I made them up. <laughs> right. That is really neat. How did, how did you get to the point of releasing it? Like, how did you find a publisher? How did you get an agent? Did you go so, down all the, the traditional paths for that or... Yes. Um, and the first book I wrote, uh, technically was my third. Okay. And by the time it came out, it, it was not recognizable as that, that first book. <laughs> that happens sometimes. <laughs> um, but what I, I started, you know, going to conferences and the, the thing that I, I always tell writers when they say, what do I need to do? I'm like, you need to show people what you're writing. The single right. most valuable thing you can do is to put it out there and get feedback. Uh, so I went to conferences, I entered contests, I got feedback. A lot of it was, um, a lot of that initial feedback was along the lines of, this has potential. <laughs> no, but nobody was saying, hey, send me your manuscript, send right. me your proposal. Um, so, a piece of advice I got in those early days as I was trying to shop that first manuscript was uh, while you're shopping the first one, write the second one. Mm -hmm. So I sat down and I started writing. And the second one was Miracle in a Dry Season. 
And by that time, you know, as I'm shopping and as I'm getting feedback, because I'm going to conferences and and learning and, and reading everything I can get my hands on about how to write and, and how to pitch and query and all that good stuff. I apparently got a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) That also happened. Yeah, yeah, that will, apparently it's true that if you practice (laughs) and educate yourself that you will improve. So um, the second story, uh, I had queried books and such, Wendy Lawton at books and such. Mm -hmm. And so I sent her the query and she says, well, this is intriguing. Send me your proposal. And this was the first time a few people had asked me for a proposal at a conference, but no one had asked for more. (laughs) (laughs) So I sent her the proposal and she almost immediately said, yeah, send me the manuscript. And I sent sent her the manuscript and uh, she tells me not to tell this story because it happened faster than it should have. (laughs) And she just happened to have time to, to read the manuscript and um, she sent it to uh, Dave Long at uh, Bethany house. And he said, huh, I like this. (laughs) Wow. You know, she, she offered me representation in November and by February, I I had a contract. Wow. And just let me tell everybody that's, I just have to say that was God saying, okay, we're going to do this now. Yeah. Because, and, and that, and that, I will also say that that fast, you know, that instant success took like 10 years of right. failure. <laughs> Everyone Everyone hears hears like that part of the story. Yeah. Sounds so quick and so exciting. Yeah. But what they don't hear is the blood, sweat, and tears yes. for that, that you gotta take into account all the rejections, all the um, you know, yeah. the it was so funny. I went to this conference and and I I called um my husband because this was the, it was the first time somebody had asked for a proposal. And so I was like, I, you know, at that point I was like, oh my gosh, somebody asked for my proposal. I'm in, I'm right. practically <laughs> published. And I called my husband and I was just, you know, on cloud nine. And he, and he said to me, wow, isn't it neat what God's doing for you? And I was like, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and of course that one, that one didn't pan out and it didn't yeah. turn into a book contract, but you know, I, I do think God gives us those moments of um, those little highs and those peaks of what where we're headed so that we will have the strength and the endurance to keep going. And, and you know, even now, each time I submit a proposal, each time I come up with a new idea, I, I'm just, I'm about to submit my manuscript for 2021. And I'm like, is this, is this good enough? Is mm-hmm. this what I'm supposed to be writing is this, um, have I put what I need to into this? And, and it's funny cause you, you probably experience this. You get to the end of the manuscript and you think, I don't know if that even makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have felt that way. <laughs> and then you go back and you read something and you're like, who snuck in here and, and added this to the manuscript? Cause this is great. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I wrote that. Wow. Yes, if you had those moments. Yes, definitely. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, that looks good. So what is your your book that's coming out in 20, 
21. Can you tell us about that or no? Is, is that it's, well, I can, I can just give you a little teaser. Um, okay. And th- this was funny too, because the miracles in the first stories were really overt and they've gotten more subtle as, as I've gone along um, in mm-hmm. um, the right kind of fool, you know, just it's, it, it's less of an overt miracle and more of um, this communication and the way that we need to be open to however communication works and that God communicates through some pretty um, uh, poor tools. I often think of myself as a not very sharp pencil, (laughs) but he can use that stubby pencil just as well as he can the fancy mechanical pencil. Mm. So in, in the one coming out next year, I was thinking, you know, what, what sort of miracle do we want to incorporate? Does it, is it subtle? Is it more overt? And my editor said, well, what about dowsing? And I was like, well, but we're talking about, oh, oh, dowsing is not a science. <laughs> I grew up where dowsing was just how you found a well. Wow. You, you know, I remember my dad being in the front yard and he's got a, a Y-shaped stick in his hands. Yeah. Using it to figure out where the water is so we can dig a new well. And I had I had never thought of it as being supernatural <laughs> because <laughs> everybody did it. <laughs> and And so I researched a little bit. I was like, oh, this is. And some people say that there is a science to like um, minerals being in the soil and uh, copper. And, you know, there's actually very, very fancy dowsing rods that that people yeah. use um, in modern day. But really, there is something a little bit mystical, magical, miraculous yeah, about definitely. it. So I was like, okay. So the hero of this story is a dowser. Um, but he is someone who doesn't. He doesn't actually believe in his gift and his ability. He's he's a little bit of a con man, and uh, and you know he he douses and he finds wells. But if you pay him enough money, he will pretend to find you a well and then skedaddle before you discover <laughs> mm-hmm. that he didn't really do it. So that's the hero, and um, the story is built around uh, the worst industrial accident in U.S. history which happened in West Virginia and wow. which hardly anybody knows about um, the Hawks nest tunnel disaster, uh, Southern West Virginia. I've, I've been to the, the tunnel and the, and the Hawks nest overlook many times. They, uh, they drilled a tunnel through the side of the mountain so that they could divert the new river. And in diverting it through the tunnel, they created hydroelectric power and, that that tunnel and that facility still provides electricity to much of of that part of West Virginia. And uh, when they dug the tunnel in the early 1930s, they dug it through. In some places, it was over 99 percent silica. Wow! And silica is basically what you make glass from. Yeah. And when you drill it, it creates silica dust. And if you breathe silica dust you contract silicosis and silicosis makes asbestos look like a walk in the park. Um, Mm. So basically these men were breathing in silica and what it does is it turns your lungs to, to stone. 
Oh my goodness. It literally solidifies your lung and you suffocate. Oh. So hundreds of men died and people were getting sick in, you know, three months, six months. It was just this tragedy that happened. And um, a huge number of the people who died were, were black men Mm. uh, because it was the depression and this was a paying job and they had come up from from the South. And so there's, um, there's a cemetery that you can visit to this day where these unnamed workers were buried. Oh, how sad. And it's, so it's just this, this tragic event that like hardly anybody knows about. And so my dowser, Sully, goes to this part of West Virginia and, and he's, he's going to meet Ganey Floyd and Jeremiah Weber and all these, these folks are going to um, wrestle with, you know, what's happening in their part of the world and um, what it means to be lost, what it means to be forgotten and uh, tying all that back to a, a man who's a finder of things. So that's, I better stop talking about it. You'll be more, you'll be more <laughs> excited about. Yeah. No, that's, that's not till next year. <laughs> that's right. That's the one I'm writing now. So I'm like totally immersed in it. I understand. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, but, do you, do you have those moments when you're like, wait, which book am I? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One's releasing, you're writing one, and then you have the idea for the one that will come after that. Yeah. Well, I haven't had the kind of success that you've had yet. So I haven't had as quick a turnaround, but, but I know what you mean. Yeah. And lately it's been, I've been reading so many books, right. This podcast that I'll be like, now, which one, who am I talking to today? And which <laughs> book did they write? So I need to make sure I look at the book and look at the website before I kind of prepare myself. Well, and I love, I love that you say uh, yet because, oh, yeah. because you're totally going to have it and um, you should definitely enjoy right now. <laughs> that is what I hear. <laughs> so are, are you a, a plotter or? Oh, I'm a pantser. Okay. Um, well, I'm kind of in between. I mean, I usually have yes. an idea where I'm going, but the story, the characters end up doing something different from what I right. plan always. Well, I'd like to ask every guest this question. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life today? Um, I mean, there's, there's of course, just the, the, the fact of it being important that we know our history yeah. But I, I think what's beautiful about incorporating history into stories that we make up is that um, we can process that history. We can like like when I'm talking about this this tragedy that happened in West Virginia, you know, that it, it's a tragedy and I can't say, okay, I'm just gonna write the happy version of that. Because that would take away from the history. But how can I sort of redeem it and say, you know, this this history that's hard is incredibly valuable and it's important that we know it. And it's important that we look at how we maybe should have dealt with it or how we could deal with something like this in the future so that we're not, you know, we're all condemned to to repeat (laughs) the, the same mistakes over and over again. But yeah, to look at them and to work them into a story, it also just makes it more, I guess, palatable in a way. 
where you, mm-hmm. you may not want to sit down and, and read a, a what might seem like a dry history. If you work it into a story, uh, it can it can not only help people know that history, but and, you know, how many times do you close a historical novel and then go Google something? Oh, absolutely. That, that oh, you read God. because, yeah. wow, that was intriguing. I want to know more now. So mm-hmm. it's it's inspiring, I think. Yeah, totally. I love that. So to finish up, who is your favorite historical fiction author? And what's one of the best historical novels you've read this year? Um, Lisa Wingate is definitely one of my oh, favorites. Yes. Yeah. And I'm super excited. I, I had meant to plug this sooner. Look at me not being a good uh, marketer. The, cur- <laughs> the curse of writers were terrible marketers. <laughs> all yeah. uh, I'm doing a, a, a great, um, well, I hope it will be great, book launch by Zoom on November 19th, you know, waiting till after that whole election thing is over. And Lisa's, Lisa's joining me for that. Oh, yay. So, so I'm like, ah, I'm supposed to talk about my book, but I really want to ask Lisa <laughs> <laughs> about Before We Were Yours and the Book of Lost Friends. I mean, when, when I read the concept behind the Book of Lost Friends, mm. I was like, this is is this real? I mean, talk about something that you want to go research and find out more about. It was just, that's great historical fiction is when, when you read it and then you want to know more about the real story and the real people. And um, Mm -hmm. one of her characters in that, that book, and I won't, I won't even say which is based on the person who they think really inspired the Lone Ranger, the character, the Lone Ranger. Really? So oh, now, if you well, I know what character it is. That okay, <laughs> and and he's not white. I know that's amazing. <laughs> so as soon as I fear, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to research this and know more about this. So that to me is what makes for great historical fiction is is just that where it drives you to learn more and to know more, and yeah. uh, and Lisa is just an awesome human being, and um, you know her her books are so good just in general so i gotta when i when we do this event on the 19th i've got to remember that i need to talk about my book (laughs) i have not i have only emailed with her a little bit but other than that i have not met her but and i love her books so yeah Um, so that the book of lost friends is, is one of my favorites um from this year but i i also have to throw out uh becoming mrs lewis which i actually read last year I want, I want to read oh. that's on my TBR. That just looks so good. Oh my gosh. Um, and I, I got to meet Patty Callahan, Henry also, and she's, mm-hmm. she's another lovely human being, but that story, you know, it's, it's Joy Davidman mm-hmm. marrying C.S. Lewis. So it's set in, I guess, primarily in the forties in England. And, um, you know, I, as I was reading that book, it just, it was one of those books that I like slowed down. I wanted to read it really fast, but I made myself slow down because it was so good. Yeah. And then as I'm getting near the end, I thought, wait, I, kn- I know what happened, but it, yeah. do I? <laughs> Cause she, she like set it up so that I was no, no longer sure of the history that I thought I knew because oh, like, that's great. they get, they do get together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That so it was so just, cool. and I've recommended it to to everyone because right. I loved it so much. 
Mm-hmm. And then she got a double Christie award for it, which, you know, I want to be mad at her about, but it was that good. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, it was really wonderful talking to you. Can you tell us where to find you online? Um, you can find me online at, at my website, uh, Loudonthomas.com. Uh, but we're also doing pre-orders for my for for the right kind of fool through Sassafras on Sutton, which is an awesome independent bookstore here. Uh, it's in Black Mountain, North Carolina. They're co-hosting my Zoom event on November nineteenth, along with the Black Mountain Library. And let me just say, if y'all, uh, this this is for authors in particular, team up with your library, with your local bookstores when yeah. you're doing events. They are so supportive and so wonderful. Um, but yeah. Sassafras on Sutton, if you just probably the easiest thing to do is is Google that. Uh, right. And it's a fabulous bookstore. It's so cute. And I can't go in there because I go in there for like one book that I specifically mean to get. And I come out with a shopping bag full of like cute bookmarks and mugs and <laughs> T-shirts. And it's Aww. just it's a reader's paradise. <laughs> yeah. So. Either my website, sarahloudonthomas.com, or check out Sassafras on Sutton. And they, because they are co-hosting, have my book on their homepage um, okay. for pre-orders. So what if we're listening to this after November 3rd? Will they still? Through November 19th. Okay, great. As awesome as they are, they might leave it up longer. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Friends, thank you so much for listening. I thought it was very interesting that I'm doing this podcast in this format that is only available to hearing people. Um, And we talked so much about the deaf community and sign language. I'm thinking about looking into in the future, being able to transcribe my podcast into blog post as well, so that it will be available to people who are not hearing. Um, That's just something that came up for me as we were talking and as I was editing this episode, listening to our conversation again. Don't forget to check out the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T slash blog. So really quickly, I just want to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, please go subscribe, share it with people, Um, give it a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That would help other lovers of historical fiction to find it. Um, The quote I'm going to leave you with this time has a lot more to do with what's going on in our world than our actual interview today, but I found it apropos. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, because as Jean Baudin says, the study of history is the beginning of political wisdom. (laughs) 